in talking about the first noble truth of suffering that was taught by the Buddha and the turning towards this human condition as it actually is. One gets a sense if you both think about it and look directly and experience in meditation practice and look at life, watch the mind as you move through life, of uh, this incredibly sensitive organism, this powerful, delicate mind, and the moving through the world that is so unpredictable and filled with inherent difficulties, you know, like aging and death, like hunger, physical, you know, literal hunger and thirst, and insects and injuries and all of that, and the fact of so many beings like you looking for pleasure and survival and so on, all interacting, and it's astonishingly complex what happens, and it's a lot. So you get this sense of being in this really, really complex and changing environment in every dimension of the environment, the most subtle sensory changes to the grossest, you know, like, like death and arguments and, you know, stuff like that. And this is, this is where we live. This is the body we live with and so on. This is the complexity of our culture, our society, our relationships and so on. And we're trying to orient and uh, find some kind of balance. The second noble truth is about the fuel that drives that, this organism through the world. It's like, what is, what is pushing and pulling us? Why don't we just sit here happily, exercising when we need to or something like that, eating when we need to, but just being happy? Why not? It sounds like an almost impossibly naive question. But the answer is telling. The answer is important. And the way the Buddha summarized this urging through the world, this not being at ease, this looking for something, he described it as, as a thirst as a kind of a hunger where feed me, 
feed me, feed me, and that feed me is driving me through the world. Sometimes this is the same word tanha, which literally means thirst, is translated as craving. But one gets a sense of, of constantly not enough, gobbling up. And this, this gobbling, wanting, urging, longing, craving, hunger, thirst, is uh, just if we think of it as a this huge kind of ball, this force or something, uh, that alone is kind of a compelling image. But if we look inside and see what the, the deeper level of the teaching that the Buddha offered on this, then we can really connect with it. And to understand this hunger deeply is exactly to understand the direction and the sense of freedom, what, what liberation means, could mean. So this second noble truth of the origin of suffering being in this thirst, this hunger. And specifically, the Buddha spoke of three elemental hungers for pleasure, for becoming, for existence, for being, for survival, for life, for the continuation of the self, and for non-being, for escape, for getting out. So I'll talk a little bit about those, but not just leave you there, which itself, if we could easily speak about these hungers all night, I've taught whole retreats on this. Very profound, subtle teaching. But the essence you can get, and if you're listening deeply, you can feel it. Because it's, again, it's something you know. I'm going to be telling you what you know. The first part is so obvious, it's almost seems silly to say, but it's so fundamental that if you don't say it, nothing makes sense, which is the hunger for pleasure and how important that is. And in traditional meditation, one of the things that becomes really clear really quickly, because you don't have all this complexity of the interpersonal stuff uh, just, you know, as a, such a powerful focus, one sees the hunger for pleasure of the senses. It's like, okay, I'm, you know, oh boy, it's time to eat, you know. We've really, the senses get very refined, and you can see how we're always looking for the next pleasant thing. Or, of course, the hunger for pleasure is the hunger to avoid pain, because when pain is present, pleasure isn't. When pain passes, that's pleasurable. When pleasure passes, that's painful, right? So we have to remember that. 
So even just all these little shifts of position is looking for pleasure. You know, all the stuff that we're always doing, even in meditation, let alone outside of this bubble of retreat, look at how we live our lives with all these little, you know, oh, now I'll have a cup of coffee. Oh, that was good. I think I'll have a snack now. And you go have a snack. I said, that was good. Oh, I would like to read a book now. I'll read a book. Oh, this is entertaining. And the story plays out in the mind. Oh, it's getting a little boring. I'll go for a walk. That would be nice. And it's like all these little pleasures. Um, but if it only stopped there, it would be really probably not too big a deal. <laughs> um, so I want to bring us back to the elemental aspect of it. And then we can see how it builds out to like dominate our lives. Wouldn't be too much to say, this search for pleasure and avoiding pain. Okay, so back to the picture of this, you know, cloud of nerves of the skin and these eyes so sensitive and these ears so sensitive, this tongue so sensitive, nose and mind so sensitive. And every touch, every touch is experienced as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And when it's pleasant, we, you know, we turn towards, we go towards and we want. And if it's unpleasant, we pull away. This is just reflexive. And that's what the infant is doing. But as this infant matures, the pleasures get more complex and nuanced. It's not just mommy or daddy's, you know, nice holding of us and so on. It's not just warm or cold. It's toys. Well, those are more complex. And it's, um, you know, uh, building, I like this toy, not that toy. And then we go through and we grow up and it gets even more complex with other pleasures. And we have a whole host of uh, uh, preferences that develop that have a cultural basis and a family basis and changes with age. But it's the basic picture is the, the, the basic urge for what's pleasant grows a whole uh, forest full of uh, specific preferences, habits, lifestyles in order to have those pleasures. Some people don't really care about car <coughs> cars. Some people are obsessed with cars. Some people, you know, don't care that much about food. Other people are obsessed with food. Some people like the sun. Some people only like the shade. It doesn't matter. The fact is that as an organism, you're constantly going for that nice stuff. Importantly, with this specific 
and acute sensitivity to other people, these pleasures come into the mix from the moment you're born. It's not just this needing the, uh, the attention of the mother to survive, but also it feels good. Oh, you let go into it and you want that pleasure and you learn ways to get it. You learn ways to evoke the pleasurable responses and that dance that we do, mother and child, is a dance of pleasure and it's alluring. And as we go through life and mature, that dance grows to our peers and so on and so forth, more and more complex unto all of the uh, plethora of social pleasures that we see around us. You know, people go to bars because they think it's fun. People go to baseball games because of pleasure. People, you know, uh, some people do really cruel things because it's pleasurable. Cruel, yeah. And uh, the push and the drive behind that is kind of always present. Now, it's not just the moment-by-moment contacts. In Buddhist psychology, th those are referred to as uh, attraction or greed, hatred or aversion, and the delusion or the turning off when something is neither pleasant nor painful. You just The mind just doesn't notice it. But the greed, hatred, and delusion, or lust, aversion, and delusion of the moment-by-moment -moment contacts is sort of just the reality of this sensi sensitive organism in the environment. But the tanha, the craving, is the whole pattern of driving through all those likes and dislikes to a point of intoxication, of consumption, that that becomes the, the orientation over the course of one's whole life. And a personality is formed, so around how can I skillfully get pleasure? How can I be good at it? How can I get a lot of pleasure? So one of the ways we do that, of course, is we, in, in our society especially, pleasure is associated with money. So the organism learns how I can get the pleasure that is associated with money, the power, the prestige, but also all the sensory pleasures. Come live the good life, you know? And, and then all of the uh, advertisers know about this hunger for pleasure. They don't know it in these terms, but they know that they're selling to pleasure. And people are manufacturing <coughs> to pleasure and designing to pleasure. And they are, um, uh, you know, the whole social structure around money is a social structure around identity and power but the kind of this underlying root of sensory and social pleasure is driving the whole social, the whole capitalistic system. 
which is a pretty big statement. So you could examine when you care to in yourself how pleasure has evoked in you the way of being in the world, this personality and these lifestyle choices and so on. Just have a look. And not thinking, oh, this is uh, evil, wrong, bad. It's just being the organism that's driven by the hunger for pleasure. That's all it is. It's just a description of a dynamic. Okay? But being in search and fear of losing, fear of losing the pleasures we have, does make for a contingent, often painful life, a life that's driven and gripping and wanting. It's the wanting. It's not like you get pleasure and you're all done. You get pleasure and then you want the next one. If you're a stamp collector, you want the next stamp, you know? If you have a nice shoe collection, you want the next pair of shoes. It's just, there's no end to it. You know, gourmands don't just want a good meal. It's a whole, you know, life mission, practically. But let's move on, because that one I think is pretty clear. Let's move on to the thirst for becoming, the thirst for existing, and to continue to exist, to continue to be and become, to become something. And this organism that has been constantly touched by the world, and we get this sense of developing that tension at the middle that is the self, right? All the gripping that creates the sense of self, not only me and my preferences, but me and my senses, and me in my relational experience with you. This is who I am because that's formed with you and you and all of you and in my culture. I feel like me. And as we know that the threat of, of not being seen to the infant is a mortal threat, and the threat of not being seen by you, for me, is a mortal threat. This is not sort of a casual, you know, yeah, I'm a little egocentric. It's not like that. This is the survival of this self. And if my self is threatened, if I am not seen, it is the death of this self, and it is terrifying to me, and I will do anything to get the um, manifesting of my existence through you, right? So I will, if I'm capable, do things to be seen through that capability. I'll be a good dancer, or I'll be a meditation teacher. I will, um, uh, I will be an athlete, or I will eat all my soup, or 
I will um, uh, dye my hair. And I think blonde would look good. <laughs> and uh, the fact that I have to dye it every week or two doesn't really matter because it's, I have to be seen. And if I don't look good with my hair, I won't be seen. Or my uh, beautiful figure, or my age, or my clothing, or my car, or my beautiful home is me. By extension, my home is me. Come into my house. Have you seen my garden? Right? My children. You want to see any pictures of my kids? Right? Look at me. This is my kids. Look at me. Right? I exist. I feel good about myself. I, I am getting the nourishment for this self. But likewise, the uh, death that comes with not being seen installs in me this profound fear of loneliness. Because loneliness isn't just displeasure. It's associated with the hunger for pleasure. I want the, the pleasure of the other. But loneliness also, and a feeling of isolation, and not feeling part of, is, once again, it's resonant with this mortal threat of existence. And in tribal life, it was a death threat. To not be part of the tribe, you couldn't survive out there by yourself. The other tribes would get you, the animals would get you, you wouldn't get enough food because you can't catch a lion by yourself, you need a whole tribe. I mean, you would not live. Here, a lot of that is buried. But we look, let's go back to the bar or the football game or the party. What is that? It's being part of. So that I can feel, ah, identified with, I exist. I am a Buddhist. I am a you must have some sort of sports team here. I am. What is it? I am a. I am a Bears fan. I am a Bulls fan. I am a whatever, right? But it's all. It's all the same. It's all the. It's all the I am, so that I can feel good and happy and secure. Uh, and once again. The whole personality conforms around this, and it's always tenuous. There always has to be more. I always have to go back to the meeting of the club to make sure I still exist, or I have to be heard by my husband or wife so I feel exist. I feel so unheard. I just, I'm not happy, you know? It's like, right? Has anybody heard this before? So. <laughs> So the, if we can't express it large, like the Gregory Kramer wing of the zoo, <laughs> or do you want to know about the zoo wing of Gregory Kramer? <laughs> That'd be much more interesting. Um, so you know, we, some of us can do really great things to be seen. You know, the donations, the hospitals, the, you know, and, and so can we in our small way. 
we act with compassion both because it's a genuine altruistic move and someone says, you are such a good person. <laughs> you know, we exist. I am. And there's pleasure and there's safety in it. Uh, the self is like, yeah, I'm okay now. I have a reason to exist. And others know it. It's validated. <sighs> right? But if that doesn't work, you know, we'll pull out a revolver and we'll kill three people and get in the newspaper. If that, you know, if, if, the, if I can't donate to the hospital, I will be the lord of my domain, you know, uh, let's say, uh, the workplace rules say that I'm in charge of the mailroom and I'm the king of the mailroom. Like, that's my place. And I own it. You know, because I exist there. I am something there. But we are all doing it all the time. We do it in dialogue. We see, we can sit down and we start building. Um, there was a guy at a recent retreat who was, he just had this kind of language. He was talking about uh, uh, perception management, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> perception management as like, you know, the project. And, um, or image management, that's it, image management. And what's that about? That's about existence, right? So, and the fear of not getting it, the fear of non-existence, the fear of invisibility, right? So it moves us through the world, it pushes us through the world. And then the third hunger is this hunger for getting out, for not becoming, for an urge, a longing for invisibility, a longing to get away from the world. And why? I take you back to the sensitivity. These eyes, these ears, this skin, this mind, every touch, every touch. And the touch of the senses is already huge and constant. And for some people, the sheer, you know, buzzing of a room or all the people or all the noise. It's like, I gotta get out of here, you know. I gotta close the doors and I gotta escape. This is just too much. And the, the organism wants sleep. It's too much. But when we understand that this includes the too muchness of bearing life, of bearing poverty, of bearing illness, of bearing being a nothing in this society because you're either not the right ethnicity 
or education level, or you don't earn enough money, you're nothing, and you can't bear it. So what do you do? You find ways out. How do I get out? Drugs, alcohol, you know, all the addictions, all of the addictions are escaping from too much. And that's all this vibhavatanha, this urge to not become, to not be, no more, no more, no more. And, and so the organism is recoiling. I'm not seeking to exist. I'm not seeking to become it. I want to get out of it. And relationally, interpersonally, the urge to get out is manifesting as the urge to get out of existence from you, to not be seen. Whereas the becoming, I want you to see me because it's my food for my narcissistic life. But the, the get me out means you looking at me is too much. So it's a fear of being seen. It's a fear of intimacy, a fear of relational contact. And we see it all the time, right? Not only in the obvious escape routes of addiction, but just in social anxiety. This is, whoa, way too much. And in Insight Dialogue, you know, it kind of is. And when you sit right in front of someone, that is, you know, touching all the circuits of the body-mind that are so sensitive. And those circuits are like firing like crazy because that's how you're built. That's not like a pathology. That's just how it is, psychophysiology, if you will. That's just part of the picture, is this sensitivity. And here, in the direct touch, because of various configurations in each of us, it can be, for some, challenging, and for some, unbearable. Unbearable. Just being seen in the world is, is too painful. And the reasons are, you know, as complex, as varied as humankind. Perhaps I've been traumatized. Perhaps I've been abused, you know? So maybe there's shame and I don't feel worthy to exist. Or it's just too scary to exist because when I existed, I was crushed. And so now I can't, I, I, coming out of the shell, it, I just don't want to do it. In fact, I am going to build a, a way of being in the world that keeps me as protected in a shell as I possibly can. Now, understand that if expressed as a hunger, this is an urge. It's an urge that just drives us. It's an urge to escape, not to go forward, but it's still an urge. 
And this is not just one person or another. This is all of us. We all manifest this in different ways, to different degrees, and in different circumstances. And a personality and a lifestyle forms around the hunger to get out, just as it does around the hunger to become. Right? So there's ways that we might manifest this hunger to not become as, uh, let's say, uh, some um, introversion or, you know, uh, kind of just ways of becoming invisible in the world, you know, just in school or in, in the workplace, we just blend in, don't, you know, don't be the tall poppy, as they say in New Zealand. Because it gets cut off, right? And we might manifest our urge to not be seen with a persona that's actually quite jolly. All jolly, everything's good out here. You know, the, the face is jolly and the actions are jolly and the things you say are jolly. But what's behind is none of anybody's business. Right? Don't see me. Just see this. This, I can manage this. I can't manage this. So, going back to just this tender picture of the human predicament, of this sensitivity in this complex environment that we've been exploring, we now see this organism in this environment looking for the food of pleasure and avoiding the food of pain and looking for the food of becoming, existing, being fed in the self. And stay, you know, like being really scared, recoiling from things that would threaten me. And we see the organism moving through the world, uh, you know, building the shell that would protect and withdrawing and withdrawing in fear, shame, unworthiness, shrinkage, uh, you know, recoiling from intimacy and so on and still wanting pleasure. You know, we're recoiling, but we want the pleasure. It's like also very much see me, see me, see me, and then hide, hide, hide is, is part of one of the moves of, of life. And so this is the root energy of tension. This is the root energy that drives the grasping of the world and the clinging to the world. Clinging to objects, clinging to people, clinging to my sense of self, clinging to each sense contact in maybe I can, you know, make it work for me. And that clinging is tension, and the tension fogs the mind. And this is where we don't see what we're doing.
And if we stop here, we have, like the picture of just the fact of suffering, this sense of the driving urging behind the suffering. It's like, ah, oh, you just want to give up the ghost, you know? But here is where the essential teaching on the Third Noble Truth can do its work. If you can really bear touching the truth of this urging and hunger and all the tension that it brings and the relentlessness of it and so on, you can say, okay, I'm ready to hear a teaching that will show me that there's some possible other way of being that is not that. Right? So there's a motivation. But the truth itself, the teaching itself, is at its root so simple. The cessation of hunger is the cessation of suffering. Poof. You understand? It doesn't mean you don't have a body. It doesn't mean you don't have a mind. It doesn't mean there's not sensitivity. So all of the humanity in that sense of, uh, you know, the uh, tenderness in, a, in an impermanent world is still just a kind of a fact of an existential fact. But where there's no hunger, there's no fear. Where there's no hunger, there's no gripping. Where there's no hunger, there's no longing for it to be otherwise, however it is. Where there's no hunger, there's no leaning forward into what's next. I want more. I must have more. And the opportunity to experience uh, peace and joy and manifest love and generosity that's always available is really always available. It's a wholly different quality of life from the constantly being lost in the getting and the fear. So this is where the uh, sense of if we can experience something of the diminishing of this thirst, 
and touch some peace that perhaps we haven't touched. If we can see the operation in our lives with clarity and frankness of hunger and grasping and becoming and the suffering of it, if we can see that clearly and we can see the alternative, really touch it, taste it, taste a moment, ah, this is sweet. This is peaceful. This is even blissful because the organism is still manifesting with all of its sensitivity in the world. But there's no burden of wanting otherwise. And all of the high load that all of us, everyone in this room I suspect, pretty much lives with a residual tension that is actually painful and might not recognize it until you experience its absence. You may not experience it. You may not know it's there until you experience the absence of that tension. And touching it, there's an instant recognition, an instant, uh, like spontaneously you know that taste as sweet, that taste of, of uh, being unburdened, unfettered, unbound, not lost in this frenetic quality, not lost in one longing after another, not burdened by a nervous system that's in constant overload, not shut off from other beings because you're obsessed with yourself, right? If I hunger to be seen, what are you to me? A pair of eyes. You're, you are all about me, in case you didn't know it. Right? Right? And if I hunger for invisibility, what are you? Yeah, you're a threat. Your eyes are a threat to me. You might see me. Exactly. But no longer. There's no hunger. I can totally be with anyone in the kind of intimacy that is not about personality, that's just being in the moment. And I don't have to gobble you up and I don't have to keep you away. So there can be this just complete openness of heart the isolation, loneliness, or fear of loneliness, the constantly feeding the machine of urging for social pleasure, gone. 
fear of death. Gone. Problems with physical pain, aging, any illness, gone. You notice I did not say that aging and illness are gone. But it's not a problem. Because each moment is just no holding on. There's no holding on because the force of hunger is what makes the holding on. The hunger for pleasure and the fear of pain, the hunger for existence and the fear of death. So this may sound like a fairy tale. <laughs> you know, it may, it may. It may seem like, what does this have to do with me? I'll tell you what it has to do with you. This path that we're talking about is described as being good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. Good in the beginning means that in the moment of discovering that there is an option, that there is something that is possible other than kind of the uh, frantic grasping that has defined your life. That very moment, it doesn't take a lot of meditation, it just to see something, to just turn the corner and say, oh, I could be, for example, a little more mindful. And that just feels good here and now. You know, you can take that right into a oncology ward of a hospital. You can take that right into a, a, a mental health clinic and find instant, right at the beginning of the path. You can take any kind of teaching that contrasts the uh, fear and self-obsession that, let's say, one has you know, come to assume everybody has and see, oh, a little bit of love, a little bit of generosity feels pretty good. Right at the beginning, you can feel that. It doesn't take a long path. In the middle, however big that middle is, each time the mind lets go, each time is sweet. Each time there's an experience of tranquility is sweet. Each time they're seeing things clearly, it's sweet. Each time there's a letting go of being locked in some personality formation, it's beautiful. 
and good at the end comes to where it sounds to us like an impossible fairy tale. But it's the same direction. It's just a little more thorough. You see what I'm saying? It's not, I'm not saying anything different. I'm not saying anything that you don't know and haven't actually experienced. When you talk about the pleasure of tranquility, when you talk about the sweetness of mindfulness, when you talk about how good it feels to be giving and supporting others, the generosity, it's all of that. So, in our meditation practice, this is the direction. Rather than the direction of trying to uh, work in this domain of all of the stuff in my life I could fix and try to get to uh, a heart that yields a turning towards the sweetness of letting go, the sweetness of kindness that naturally comes forth when there's not self-obsession. It's really simple. Really simple. So just to recap, that first noble truth is to recognize the suffering and turn towards it. The second noble truth is that that suffering has its origin in this craving, this thirsting that drives, that pushes the life. And this can be recognized. And the third noble truth is the cessation of the hunger is the cessation of suffering and that this can be this is this is something that can be done i mean this is something that can be worked with in the human experience at a profound level and then the fourth noble truth is how it's the path we're not going to talk about that now but but that's the <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad you're on the edge of your seat. That's really good. That's perfect. Um, so uh, that's the kind of the, you know, the infrastructure of... Uh, this uh, Buddhist path, this Buddhist teaching, within which what we're doing has an obvious uh, function. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate